Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Before I preach this morning, I'd like to say a few words about music. This uh, anthem that we just heard is off of a three... Uh, a three-CD set that is wonderful. Um, it's called The Psalms of David. I think it's a London production. Um, and I can't remember, Paul, where are you? Or Phil, where are you? I can't remember what the name of the... Uh, it may be Decca. But anyhow, look, actually, no. What it's called is the Treasury of David. And it's Anglican chant. And I encourage all of you to tune, tune your voice here that what you do, do there, you do here before. And you know what you're going to do there is worship God. And so increasingly, push your music into leading your soul. And the way you do that is you get rid of the Beatles, you get rid of Pink Floyd, you get rid of Yes, you get rid of all this crud that you've, that you've spent your life accumulating. Now, I'm not saying that all the, all the people that, that I listened to were wrong. I once went through a spiritual exercise of sorting through my records and deciding what ones I had to destroy and what ones I could sell to the used record store. And... Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't guess that any, any two of us would make the same decision about what was evil. It had as much to do with me as it did with the artist sometimes, you know. I think the most evil album I ever owned was Dark Side of the Moon, which was also my all-time favorite album, you know, because it just encouraged fatalism in me, right? Right? Is the lunatic in your brain? Ha, 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 ha. But I found as I get older that what I want is I want my music to lead my heart. I was reading, um, I was reading Calvin this morning, and Calvin was quoting Plato about the importance of music. And if you got Plato and Calvin both agreeing, that's critical mass. And so uh, cultivate, listen to people that you respect, tell you what to listen to and what to buy in terms of music. Um, I can tell you that I almost never write, whether it's a sermon or a book or or often a blog post, without listening to the band's uh, My Soul Among Lions recordings. And before that, it was their their other music. Um, I'm not tired of it. And a lot of it, it's because I know their character. And so I'm led. Um, another thing that uh, if you get the translation, you can't just listen to it in German unless you know German. But St. Matthew's Passion, St. John's, um, as I said, the Treasuries of David, it's Anglican chant, and you'll learn a lot of the words of the Psalms just by listening to that. Um, there are also some recordings. Uh, Boston Camarade has done some recordings of uh, early colonial worship music that are just wonderful because the music is, uh, um, it's not femi. Most of the music that's being written today is effeminate. It doesn't speak about judgment and hell. And so the early uh, colonial music will actually sing about God's judgment and damnation and stuff like that. And I find that very helpful. It kind of is like getting my chain yanked, you know? Um, So everybody here would have some suggestions for you, but what you heard here is one of my favorites, which is this three-volume set called The Treasuries of David. It's Anglican chant. And listen, you want to hear an incredible song. Listen to, what is it? Is it Psalm 137, Alex? Uh, By the waters of Babylon, is that what that is? Unbelievable setting. By the waters of Babylon. We sat and wept as we remembered Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. And uh, I don't know, have we ever sung that yet? We have actually done it, yeah. I've died and gone to heaven when I can be in a church whose choir actually sings that. 
You know why I'm saying that? Any of you know? Well, when you get home, look up Psalm 137, read the whole thing, and you'll realize why I say that I'm overjoyed to be in a church that would do that, because it doesn't end real pretty. It's not a favorite of mothers. All right, I'll just give you a hint. (laughs) Now, this morning, we have, and so anyhow, thank you, choir. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, musicians. It's unbelievable the gift that God has given us. It's just unbelievable. Honestly, honestly. I don't know how I could write and preach if it weren't for our musicians. I I really don't. And listen, you are what you eat. Okay, we all know that, right? But I don't need to tell you that. You are what you listen to. And so use your music to lead your soul, okay? I'm not saying don't listen to crud. Everybody has to occasionally eat, you know, saltines. (laughs) And sometimes it helps to remember how much you love your wife to listen to the old songs, you know? But listen. Train your heart through your music. Music, Plato and Calvin both agree. All right. This week we come back to the book of 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. I'm going to pick up this week with verse 9, and we're going to read through verse 17. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, How will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. This is the word of the Lord. So, we're in an extended section where the Apostle Paul is dealing with the abuse of glossolalia, which is a Greek word for tongues. Um... What was going on in the church, it's clear, if you put everything that's written across these chapters together, is that certain people believed that they had a superior gift to other people because they were able to speak in tongues. And it's also clear that when they spoke in tongues, those tongues were uh, uh, completely, um, they were babble. They were unable to be heard or listened to by the other people of the church, and it's clear that they weren't interpreted by anyone. So they were completely unedifying. They were not helpful in any way at all. And so what happened in that church is that um, the, the people who said that they had a strong spiritual gift were focused on themselves and were using a gift of the Spirit to give themselves preeminence among the people of God. Okay? Now, we know that in every assemblage of of people, just like a chicken house, there is preeminence. All right? We're aware of this. Uh, none of us are ignorant enough to think that we can assemble a utopian community where everybody's equal. There's never been such a thing, right? I always point out to people that talk about how awful hierarchy and authority are that 
It was just always true. Every year you could count on the National Organization of Women having a fight over who the president would be. You know? And then I always point out that if you go to Mother Jones magazine and you open it up to its masthead, guess what? It's vertical. It's not horizontal. It starts at the top, you know, the editor-in-chief, the managing editor, the associate editor, you know. And so even the feminists who hate authority and hierarchy and, and diss it every time they open their mouths, they're always demonstrating that there is, in fact, always authority. There's a pecking order. But in the church, the pecking order is to be by the decision of God. It is not to be by the manipulations and aspirations, okay, of people. Does this make sense? Now, if you're smart, you're going to sit there and you're going to go, well, you know, you're 63, you weigh 260, you got a master's degree of divinity, and it's all well and fine for you to say this, but... Here you are, the boss, telling us this, you know. You, you're at the top, you know. It's easy, as my dad would say, it's easy for you to say. Well, listen, I didn't used to be this way. <laughs> I certainly didn't weigh this much. Um, th- this weight is largely the product of a life of counseling you. If you want to know the truth, and the stresses that come with that, and the depression that comes with that, And so you medicate through food. Okay? So when I was a young man and Mary Lee and I had gotten married, what did we do? Well, immediately we went to work with the high school kids in our church. Why? Because we had it burning in us. Why? Well, I think it was because that was the gift that God gave us. We didn't get paid. We did it. And then when we weren't working with high school kids, guess what I was doing? I was cleaning two different churches, one real large and one small. Why? Because I love the church. Why? Well, because I think it's a gift that God gave us. Do you understand? Then when we got home, we had a small group, and they were always at our house. Why? Because we love the church. Why do we love the church? Well, it's because it's a gift that God gave us, you know? Why? Well, guess what? Every time my mother and father and every time Mary Lee's mother and father were awake, they had people in their homes that they were loving on and feeding. Why? Well, because they loved the church. This is a gift, all right? And it didn't mean that I would be a pastor, but when Mary Lee and I went out to work at First Pres out in Boulder for a year before seminary, the reason we did it is we wanted to know whether or not God was calling us into the pastoral ministry. And I remember very distinctly, despite making a perfect idiot of myself that year, and if you want to hear the stories, I'll tell them to you. During that year, what ended up happening is that church said to us, you have gifts for ministry and we think you should go to seminary and we're going to help you go to seminary. So now don't just be cocky about me and say, well, you know, the reason you're up there is because you've set yourself forward and you've said, this is who I should be. Um, a lot, of, a lot of men go to seminary who never get a call. I told you about this a few weeks ago. There are men who believe that God may be calling them to pastoral ministry, but when it comes to actually getting a call, they never get a call. And guess what? The theology of call is that you are of ordination is you may not be ordained. Even if your great-great-great-grandpa was a pastor and your grandpa and your, and your dad, and even if you, you have pastors going back and you can speak with the tongues of men and angels and a church does not look at you and say, we call you to be our pastor, even if you have an MDiv, the union card, right? You may not be ordained. Because we don't believe that a man is called to the ministry until a church actually says to him, you we want for a shepherd, right? So now, I'm coming back and I'm saying to you, hierarchy is always present in every human society. You have elders. Those elders are your elders because you chose them. 
all right? You have older women that you go to, and you make a decision which older women you'll go to and which you won't. And I don't want to get real specific about this. There's always levels of authority and responsibility in, in human society. However, those levels, that pecking order is never to be a function of the pride and the aspirations of an individual. Yeah, it's good to aspire to be a shepherd. It is good. But the position is never to yield simply to to a man's aspirations. Well, the same thing is true of glossolalia and tongues. You know, we can aspire to have a pronounced and visible, and may I say exotic, manifestation of the Spirit at work in us, which is what tongues is, right? It's exotic. But it's not given for us to be exotic by the burnishing of the gift that we manifest. The minute you speak in tongues and you don't have an interpreter and you don't interpret it yourself, you have become a... a, a um, well, you become a pain to the church. You're the very opposite of an edifier, a builder up of the church. You're harming the church. Why? Well, because what you're doing is you're telling the church to have special respect for you because why? Well, because you have an exotic spiritual gift. Okay? That's what was going on in Corinth, and it was absolutely driving the church crazy. Everybody was uh, competing with each other. And they were competing with each other, against each other, using the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if that ain't perverse, I don't know anything that's perverse. I'm going to pray that I have the gift of tongues so I can whoop up on Adam. Adam says, I'm going to pray for the gift of tongues so I can whoop up on... You know, it's it's just awful. It's absolutely awful. And so he says to this church where certain, and I, I've hesitated saying men or women because if you, if you read the book of Corinthians, you see that there were women who were speaking publicly in a way that was inappropriate. They were told to be quiet, to, to be silent, okay? Because they weren't reflecting their femininity, their calling as a sex, Now, whether that included prophetic words, there are times where we see in the New Testament prophetesses who do speak. We don't know the context clearly. Whether that included tongues, whether these tongues were coming from women and men or just from men, we don't really know. So there were persons who were speaking publicly in a tongue, and when I say tongue, that means something that nobody could understand. That's the nature of what we're dealing with. Nobody could understand it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the Apostle Paul writing in the way he's writing. The whole thing is about comprehension, okay? So whatever the tongue was, it was incomprehensible to the people of the church. The person speaking the tongue was not translating, and nobody else was translating, and it was incomprehensible, all right? And so the Apostle Paul, picking up after this uh, verse that Pastor Max preached on on Uh, the bugle, the war horn, he says this. So he's used the analogy of a musical instrument, a brass instrument. And then he says, so also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear. So first we have a distinct note from the brass. Now we have a voice that speaks clearly. And he says, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear. How will it be known what is spoken? Now, the lack of clarity in that church was some sort of unknown tongue. David, Pastor Max, and I disagree on the nature of that unknown tongue. He believes that they were actually extant languages, dialects and stuff. I don't think so. His argument is based upon Pentecost where you see that everybody spoke in tongues and was understood by all the different nationalities that were there. I think that we've morphed into something different here, all right? And God bless you whatever your conviction about this is. But what we know is it wasn't understood. Unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, their speech wasn't clear because it was some unknown tongue. 
how will it be known what is spoken? So, you know, it's unknown. How will it be known unless it's spoken? It has to be spoken clearly. If you don't do this, you're, you're speaking in the air. And so if you're speaking to the air, nobody's hearing you. That's the expression. Now, I want to take a second here because you, when you read Scripture, you always want to apply Scripture to your sin. And your sin often is not precisely the same sin that's being addressed in Scripture. But the application is very clear. Now today, we don't have a lot of people standing up in our services going, we just don't have it. Sometimes we have, you know, people that want to speak in Spanish, but we're building a wall for that kind of thing, right? I thought that was funny. Some people don't think that's funny. All right, okay. (laughs) I mean, that's a joke, right? We're not trying to build a wall to keep people from speaking Spanish in church. I wish we had huge numbers of Spanish speakers in this church, actually. That's my fantasy, secret fantasy. I wish this church had, as soon as we got done, another Spanish church that started to meet. That's actually what I wish. But the most we would have is a violation of this in this church that is close to what the Apostle Paul was dealing with in Corinth would be if we had a missionary, if we had somebody who would, who would pray, who would speak, and we wouldn't have an interpreter. And so I would hope that you would say to us who have the responsibility of protecting the church from error, no, you may not do that. You may not have somebody speak in Spanish who doesn't get translated, right? Because that's the whole point. It's amazing to me how Scripture can be very, very specific in giving instructions and saying, don't do this, do this. And then we can just feel so spiritual when we don't do it or when we do do it. You know, kind of reminds me of being a father, you know? So, he says, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, and we don't have tongues being, uh, being spoken in our worship, and we generally don't have missionaries speaking in Chinese or in Spanish or in some foreign tongue without a translator. So what's the application? Okay, what is the application then? Well, the principle is to speak with clarity so that people understand what you're saying, right? Now, I'm coming after you. So fasten your safety belts. Our generation never speaks with clarity. Never. We are a generation of liars. Lying is our native tongue. And you say, oh, come on, this is a church. We're Christians. How could you say that? And I say, listen, we never stop flattering each other. Flattery is the native tongue of Facebook. Or something worse, called equivocation. We are masters of equivocation. We're supposed to let our yay be yay and our nay be nay, but we are a generation of yays that are nays and nays that are yays. And then we have the audacity to deny that's what we're doing. We expect everybody to play along and to be suckers to to our equivocation. I used as an illustration the first service, and it's not the best one, but let me try it out again. If I were to say to you as a congregation, you know, I have never loved a congregation like this congregation. It would make you all feel real warm. And you'd say, oh, we love you too, Tim. Some of you <laughs> would say that, right? And, and, and then you'd go home and, you know, you'd be sitting on the couch. You'd be thinking about it. You'd be thinking, what, what, what do you mean by that? 
You know, what do you mean he never loved a congregation like this congregation? And it might occur to you to, to ask the question, has he ever had another church? And then you'd say, yeah, I think he had a couple other churches. And then it might occur to you to think, huh, so did he love them? So let's just say I'm in the living room on the couch next to you, and you turn to me and you say, you know, you said that you've never loved a church the way you love us. And, you know, I was like feeling all warm and fuzzy about that at church, but I got to thinking about it, and I got to think, how come you're, what about your two previous churches? Did you not love them? And, and then I would say what? Well, you know what I would say. I would say, oh, yeah, I love them too. <laughs> you know? And I would hope you would shut up at that point. Right? But let's just say that you were tenacious, impertinent, pushy. And you came after me, you said to me, now wait a second, if you had two previous churches and you say you never loved a church the way you, what was wrong with those previous churches? Nothing was wrong with them. I loved them. I told them they loved me. I loved them. I loved them. Well, did you ever tell them that you loved them more than your other churches? Well, the first one was the first one. I couldn't say I loved them more than any other church. I hadn't had any other church. Well, I've heard men say that their first church is like their bride, that they never get over their love for their first church. How about you? Is that true of you? And I'd go, eh. Yeah. Well, then how can you say that you love us more than any other church? that you love us more. And I go, oh, come on. It's a way of speaking. And you go, so in other words, you lied. And I go, oh, don't you have any romance in you? You know, can I speak the words of love so soft and tender to win your heart? And you go, but I thought a pastor is not supposed to exaggerate. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Haven't you ever said to your wife that you love her when you really, at that moment, just like her? (laughs) Well, yeah, but that's different. Why is it different? Well, because it's just different. You know, you didn't ask everybody at the same time to buy your lie. It's not a lie. I said I love this church more than I've ever loved any congregation. This church is my faith. Okay, so in other words, you didn't love your first church as much, right? Now listen. This is the way that we lie. We just have all these sophisticated ways of saying that what we say is truth when it isn't, okay? And so we use exaggerations, we use superlatives, we use words that are themselves aren't accurate, and then we use words that mean one thing in one place and another thing in another. And we know that we're misleading the two groups of people that we're using the same word with, because when we use that word with this side, it means one thing, and we use that word with this side, it means something else, right? That's equivocation. And it's a lie. You are responsible for the conclusion that the person you're speaking to comes when you use those words. You can't defend yourself saying, well, I I meant the words in this way, if you knew that when they listened to you, they were going to take the word in a different way. That's why you used the word in that way, because you wanted them to think you meant one thing, and then when you used the same word with this group, you wanted them to think you meant something else. That's equivocation, and it's a lie. You're not speaking clearly, and so you're not being understood. Now, why not argue that it's not really that you're lying, but rather it's just you're not understood? Well, the reason is that you're the one communicating, and you're not stupid. You know exactly what you're doing. Do you understand this? So a lot of what Mary Lee and I were working on, because she helps me, the last two weeks was writing a book about equivocation in the church. 
And where do you think that the church today would equivocate, would lie? Come on. Homosexuality. Why? Well, because that's where all the pressure is. If you want to take pressure off the church today, and you want to equivocate, and you don't see a problem with it, where are you going to do it? You're going to do it in the way you speak to the world about homosexuality. That's where you're going to do it. And so let me give you an illustration of the church not speaking clearly. All right? Recently, there were a bunch of church leaders who called a press conference to announce to the mainstream media that they are opposed to reparative therapy. Okay? Opposed to reparative therapy. All right? Then those same men went to their own constituency, the people that pay their salaries and the people that are in the know, the cognoscenti, the people who are in their churches, who pay tuition, the people who they are Christians with, and they told them they were against reparative therapy. Now, there's no problem here, is there? We're against reparative therapy. We're against reparative therapy. It meshes, doesn't it? Here's the problem. The problem is, when they told the Christians they were against reparative therapy, they explained it this way. They said... Reparative therapy has no gospel. It has no repentance. Reparative therapy delves into the psyche of of, of children who are raised uh, in alienation from their same-sex father, uh, you know, whatever sex they are, and, 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 and it gets all psychological, and it and there's no repentance. The problem with reparative therapy is there's no, there's no sin and there's no repentance, okay? And that's, that's what they say to Christians when they're private, okay? But remember, they just got done saying they're against reparative therapy over here, okay? And what they say over here to the mainstream media is, we are against reparative therapy because there's no repentance, And there's no sin. Wrong. (laughs) Wrong. I mean, it's incomprehensible that they would say that to mainstream. Mainstream, yeah. Well, partners, what's that? You know? Mainstream media would have no way of comprehending. It would be incomprehensible. And so what they said to the mainstream media is, we are against reparative therapy. And the mainstream media responded by saying what? They responded by saying, finally. We didn't think it was possible, but it, it's, it's miraculous, but it's happened. Those fundamentalist, ignorant, judgmental haters have seen the light. And they don't see homosexuality and bisexuality and transsexuality and lesbian. They don't see them any longer as a disease that needs to be healed because they're against reparative therapy. And to them, reparative therapy is what? Well, it's anything that moves a man or a woman from the sex God called them to when he made them in the womb to conform to it and to love it. To the mainstream media, reparative therapy is taking any work to move somebody to love the sex God made them. You are not allowed, so we've got Illinois, we've got California, we've got Washington, we've got Washington, D.C., we've got New York, we've got Miami Beach, we've got Miami, we've got Cincinnati, we've got Toledo, I could go on and on and on. All of them have criminalized reparative therapy. And what they've criminalized is any attempt by a helping professional to move somebody to be in synchronicity with their sexual plumbing, and their psyche. That's what they have made illegal. 
you may not help anybody to move towards their plumbing. Are you all with me? But these same cities and states will give you public money to take a child (laughs) and to mutilate their plumbing and then to give them drugs to mutilate their hormones so that they can grow breasts or facial hair. Do you understand me? And so what society is saying is, listen, it is wonderful and we will give you public monies to help you move someone away from submission to God and who he made them to be, man or woman. But we will criminalize anybody that moves anybody towards the sex that God made them. Okay? Okay, you all with me? And so when I stand up as a Christian leader and I say to the mainstream media, I'm against reparative therapy, what do do they think? Finally, somebody sees that it's a a part of the grand tapestry of of nature, that some people identify opposite their sex, some same sex, some halfway, some questioning, some queer. I mean, finally, conservative Christians are, are getting with the program, and the program is rebellion against God. And they hear me say that I now agree that those who are in rebellion against who God made them are actually fine. And that nobody should screw with their gender identity. Do you see this? And then when I get done telling mainstream media that, and mainstream media just loves it. They go, finally, these guys, I mean, I never had hope, but they have finally, they've seen the light. And then I come over here. doesn't say anything about repentance. Isn't that awful? And these these simpletons in the church who have cultivated the absence of discernment and just want to know what their brand names are, and that's all they have tolerance for, you know, they go, yeah, I'm against reparative therapy too. Okay, okay, are you with me? Because I believe in the gospel and I believe in sin and repentance and homosexuality is sin. But of course, that's not what he just said. He said the problem with reparative therapy is it doesn't have sin and repentance in the gospel. But he did not say homosexuality was sin. But let's say he did say, he said, and we all know, homosexuality is sin. And then he comes over here. And he goes, psst, homosexuality is sin. Uh-uh. <laughs> it doesn't say that. Do you see? Here's what happens. When the church speaks this way, this group over here, he's depending upon it never speaking to this group over here. Because the minute the two of them say, he said reparative therapy is sin, and then The simpletons just speak honestly because they're not the leader. The point of the leader is to lie, okay? But the simpletons aren't taught to lie. They're just taught to trust the leader, the brand name. And so what you say to the mainstream media, it turns out we don't have a truce at all. It turns out that these people are just as ignorant and backward and prejudiced and haters as as they always thought they were. And so then they come to the leader and they say, dude, you got some work to do with those people over there. But I'm the one that's taught them to not be discerning. I'm the one that's spoken with a forked tongue. I'm the one that's taught them to suck up equivocation. Do you see this? And so the church today on homosexuality has come out with all these Are you ready? All these unclear statements. And the the question is, do the people the church is saying these unclear things to, do they understand what has been said to them? Does mainstream media understand what the leaders have said to them? Is there any separation between what the leaders said to them and what the mainstream media understands? And the answer is no. 
the mainstream media has perfectly understood the leaders. So then I ask you, over here, do these people have any problem understanding what I just said? There's no gospel, and there's no sin, and there's no repentance. Now, you understand me perfectly. Now watch this. Here's what the verse says. It says, so, unless you, so also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? I have spoken with perfect clarity to you, and you have understood what I have said. I have spoken with perfect clarity to them, and they have understood what I have said. I am a liar. Do you see this? I can't tell you that I'm not responsible for what mainstream media thinks when I get done telling them I'm against reparative therapy. And I can't tell you that I'm not responsible for the simple Christians who left thinking this, that, and the other thing about what I meant when I said I'm against reparative therapy. And if you end up speaking with clarity to one group about the same subject as another group, and the two groups get together and they're incomprehensible to each other, you're responsible for lying to both of them. The truth is I'm misleading you, and the truth is I'm misleading them. This is the problem that we face today. This is our sin against the building up of the church. In the church across America today, leaders are speaking in such a way as to mislead the people in the church about the nature of the sins of homosexuality, of bisexuality, of transsexuality, of questioning, of whatever the sexual sin is, the leaders of the church today are equivocating right and left. And it's because this is the pressure point and we don't want to be ashamed. That's why. We are ashamed of Jesus' words. And so we're equivocating, we're lying to escape the shame. Now, what... <laughs> Let, let me end with this, okay? What happens if we speak clearly? Let's just say as a thought experiment that all of us repented of our equivocations and we decided that we were going to speak clearly. In other words, what I'm saying is, how bad will it be if we speak truthfully? Okay, how bad will it be? And, and what I want to say to you is, never in my life, ever, have I tried God and found him lacking. Never. Never. Now, I have perpetually sinned by not trying God. I have perpetually sinned by not obeying him, by not stepping out by faith. And guess what? I have failed me. <laughs> but God has never failed me. If we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, the power of the Holy Spirit at work through us is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And the last couple of weeks, as, as we've been writing, Mary Lee was also writing a talk she's going to be giving on raising daughters, and so we were working together. And the scripture that just kept coming into my mind and into my mind was where Jesus speaks to the woman at the well, and he's so direct to her about her sin. You're right, you know, go call your husband. You're right, you don't have a husband, you know. You've had five, and the one you're with isn't your husband. That's how specific Jesus is about her sin. 
right? Right? You know, we always think that, that, that being righteous was easy for Jesus. And so we hear him say that, and we think, well, I guess if you're Jesus, that's what you say. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but I'm not Jesus, and that's not what I say. But Jesus is our example. And that's what he did when he dealt with somebody who was drowning in their sin, is he named it. But, and you know, you, come on. You have, to, you have to realize that this is the subtext to what I'm saying. Jesus had already loved her. He'd asked her for a favor. <laughs> you know, when, when you've asked a gay guy for a favor, then you have the right to say, so who are you living with now and how many of your partners have died of AIDS? Right? You have to love the people that you're witnessing to, but Jesus had loved her. Now, here's my point. Jesus named the sin. He didn't equivocate about the sin. He didn't say three when he knew it was five. Okay, he was direct, right? Okay, this is Jesus. Now, tell me, she believed in Jesus. He named her sin and she came to faith. And then what did she do? What did she do? You know, there was another sinner that came to Jesus, and Jesus named his sin. Do you remember? The rich young ruler. He said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then follow me. And again, we just think that was easy for Jesus. Jesus does that kind of thing, right? You know? But do you remember why it says that he said that to the rich young ruler? It says right before he says that to the rich young ruler, it says that he, Jesus, loved him. It was love that caused Jesus to speak to him of his riches. <laughs> oh, man. You know, my premise about the church is we have no love, none, for homosexuals. None. None. All our equivocations are to cover up the fact that we can't stand them. And so we're happy for them to be sinners lost with no hope. So he's speaking to this woman, and he says to her, you know, go call You're right, you said, you know, five, and one you're living with isn't your husband. She comes to faith in Jesus. And then what does she do? Here's her testimony. Here's her witness. She goes back to the village, and she is the village hoe. Okay? And her message to the village is, come, and see the man, what? He told me everything I've done. Listen, you either live by faith or you don't. Either you have faith for the forgiveness of sins or you don't. Either you have faith for the forgiveness of your disgusting sins and therefore for homosexuals' disgusting sins, or you don't. But don't patronize homosexuals. Don't you dare lie to them. They are just like you. They're just like you. and you withhold their sin from them, you refuse to speak of it, you say you're against reparative therapy. You get everybody in church to be against reparative therapy. You talk about how heterosexuality is not godliness. You say that gay Christians are just fine. And it's so very clear that all you're doing is running with shame over the words of Jesus Christ. In a day when the words of Jesus about sexual sin are horror-inducing to this world that's just in rabid rebellion against him. But you repent of your sexual sin? And then how could you ever not have hope for a lesbian? <laughs> Shoot, a lesbian's nothing after you. 
your sexual sin. I'm not even talking about your pride, your greed. Come on. The only hope for this church is that we begin to believe in the gospel. And the gospel is us going into this world and saying, come, come meet the man who told me everything that I have done. And everybody in that village knew precisely what she was saying when she said, what I've done. (laughs) You know, there was not a husband and not a wife in that community that didn't know what she'd done done. And that was her testimony. And listen, there's a lot of things that you've done done. And either you're willing to be humble and confess that you have met a God who forgives sins and that you are the chief. Or there's no hope for us. Because sooner or later, our equivocating is going to be found out. And it isn't going to be nice, and it's not going to be pretty. Because what most of the church is going to do is completely cave on sexual sin. We've already caved on fornication. We've already caved on adultery. We've already caved on feminism. We've already caved on divorce and remarriage. We've already caved on everything else, and there's no reason the liberals shouldn't get their sexual sin. It's time, people, for us to have faith to go into the world and tell people that we have met a man who has told us everything we did. What? Yeah, yeah. It's the perfect moment. David says, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a perfect moment for us to come to the table. Because there's not one of us that isn't a liar. It's the nature of our age. But Jesus saves sinners. And so let's come to the table and eat and drink. Okay? Okay.